Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, air pollution in China might be killing creativity, Tang Wei beats the China blacklist, we're back for one show in March, and we're going to be talking about the Hong Kong International Film Festival, and we look at the films Princess and Seven Kung Fu Masters and Finding Mr. Right. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and lots of stuff in between. It is Saturday, March 30th, 2013. As usual, I'm your host and joining me at long last from his secret location right here in the Fragrant Harbor is Mr. Kevin Ma. We're back! What's up? We're back. It's been uh, almost uh, almost a month uh, that, that uh, since our... I think it's just over a month. I think our last episode was on February 27th. I have my uh-huh. dates correct, so uh, yeah, we were not uh, very active in March, and mostly my fault because of the move, getting things set up, and then we've got the Hong Kong Film Festival that's uh, still going on until next week, I think it ends next week, is that right, Kevin? Uh, it ends uh, actually on Tuesday. Yeah, so it's just been a tremendously busy time, I'm super busy at work, and the move kind of uh, escalated things. I'm still not fully set up in my in my office here. Uh, that I broadcast from. Um, I've got things about maybe 40% squared away. I've got the most of the system set back up, but we've had I've had some technical problems with a couple things, which is one of the reasons why we're not streaming this episode live. So we do apologize to those who like to join us in the chat room for uh, not having all of our technical difficulties fully worked out yet, but hopefully over the course of the next month we will uh, bang out all the gremlins in the system uh, but I moved into a new place, and uh, the family is healthy and happy, and we're uh, really glad and fortunate that we found a, a good place. We're still in the new territories, um, in, in a in a village, in the Taipo area. Yeah, so we've got a fairly nice environment, fairly clear and clean weather on most days, and uh, so we're pretty happy with uh, the way things have turned out. Um, but uh, we've got a nice little break here. We're on sort of a four-day weekend, so happy Good Friday uh, to those of you out there who uh, are possibly having a day off and, and, and celebrating. It's actually Saturday morning here in Hong Kong at the time we're recording this, and uh, we've got uh, um, Monday uh, as a holiday as well, and then we've also got uh, next Thursday, right, Kevin? Because that's the tomb-sweeping day. Yeah, so um, a lot of people are actually taking. Uh, I think if they take, if they take, let's see, the twenty, they take today off. No, they took um, upcoming Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday off. Then they get a uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight day vacation. Well, actually, I do. You guys have Monday off because we have Monday off too. Oh yes, uh, we do. We do. Easter, we do. So they just need to take yes. like Tuesday and Wednesday. Well, and, play, and they get Friday off, then it's like a 10-day, yeah. well, and the weekend, so yeah. it's like a like a 10-day vacation. So <gasps> when you talk about East meets West, this is uh, one of the ideal things about being in Hong Kong, because we get the Chinese holidays, and we get the Western holidays, so 
But we get double the work when we go back. <laughs> Everything piles up, right? <laughs> right. All right. Well, we are here to talk about uh, some films amongst other things. So what are we going to look, be looking at this week, Kevin? Uh, finally, we'll be looking at what well, a lot of films have come out uh, during this time. But uh, mostly we'll be doing an e-screen show today looking at Wang Jing's Princess and the Seven Kung... Well, not the... Sorry. Princess and Seven Kung Fu Masters and the uh, Chinese romantic comedy Finding Mr. Right. All right. All of that and a little bit more coming up right after a little bit of news. All right. So before we get into our news proper... Uh, we want to have a little bit of uh, sort of frontline reporting from the Hong Kong International Film Festival that's been going on for the past couple of weeks and is still going on. Um, now, I'm be- I've been out of the festival circuit for a number of years now, and I think I mentioned last time that um, it's uh, because of work and because of the family and everything, it's 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 more difficult for me to get out and see stuff. And every once in a while, I'll have one film that I usually want to get out and see, and it's scheduled like in the middle of the day, and I'll have a class or something, so it's just impossible for me to get away unless I take an entire day off. And I don't want to do that usually for an older film, and I think uh, the, the film that they were showing was um, Wicked City, the Hong Kong uh, Tsui Hark um, um, remake or adaptation of the anime of the same name from Japan. And I was, I've always wanted to see that um, in the cinema. I've seen the Japanese version in the cinema before at another festival, and I've always wanted to see the uh, Hong Kong version in, in the cinema. I've, I've got it on video somewhere back in the States, and I've seen it quite a few times. Um, but I was kind of disappointed that I wasn't able to make it out to see even one film this year. <laughs> um, so my record of seeing no films is uh, ongoing now for, I think, uh, five years running. Uh, but Mr. Ma has been out and about and rubbing creative shoulders and seeing lots of films. So can you give us a, a rundown of some of the high points and maybe some of the low points of the festival so far? Um, yeah, I mean, this year, actually, the, uh, I would say overall, the, I, I don't remember the last year's, uh, quality overall, but yeah, this year it's, everything's been kind of average, not, not particularly great. I mean, I just saw, I just went and watched, uh, the opening festival's opening film, It Man, uh, the final fight last night, and, you know, it's okay. I can see why they chose the opening film, but it's not a great film. Um, you know, I have to skip a couple movies, damn you, Paul, for... <laughs> <laughs> predicting I would do so, <laughs> but anyway, well, that's was... just your annual track record. I mean, that's 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 like easy money. <laughs> yes, yes. I really did try. I mean, some some of the things I couldn't. I, I you know there was like a Wong Kar Wai talk, which I ended up missing anyway as well. I, I missed the film to watch Wong Kar Wai talk, and then I missed the Wong Kar Wai talk. <laughs> so that's like double fail right there, right? And then uh, I missed another film because of a dinner, which I was scheduled to yesterday. Um, and then yes, I I skipped like a few other films but uh yeah i mean of course as expected the beautiful 2013 omnibus uh continues to be very inconsistent uh last year i think we had a uh last year we had a korean director we had a hong kong director and hoist film um and 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 um let me let me try and remember who else beautiful 20 oh a film by chiming nang and uh Another film, I believe. But, uh, you know, it's only one or two of them were okay. And same for this year. Um, this year, there was, uh, this year you have uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa, the horror, Japanese horror director. Uh, Mabel Chen from Hong Kong. Wu um, Nanjian from, from Taiwan. You may remember him as, a, as a, the lead in uh, Edward Yang's Yi Yi, who is, he's also a writer-director, actually. And um, who is the other 
director. Oh, and a cinematographer, Chinese cinematographer. And of course, only two of those films were good, and the rest were kind of embarrassing. Um, also, meant to watch a few old films. Uh, I'm supposed to go to Lawrence Arabia later today. Uh, I saw As Tears Go By, uh, a very a kind of worn down 35 millimeter print with missing set with uh, periods of missing subtitles. Uh, but it was nice to see on the big screen. Um, you kind of really appreciate the cinematography by Andrew Lau uh, when you watch this film on the big screen. Um, as for newer films, uh, I think some of the better films that I've seen so far is uh, Johnny Toe's upcoming Drug War, which I thought is actually quite funny, considering all the, all the violence in it. There's lots of uh, fan service for, for Hong Kong fanboys, especially those who like election. I won't spoil anymore. Um also, a, a nice um, uh, light romantic comedy, uh, not romantic comedy, but light, light uh, comedy from America called uh, Francis Ha, which is directed by Noah Baumbach, um, who's worked with Wes Anderson before as a, as a co-writer on Fantastic Mr. Fox and, um, and another film, uh, Life Aquatic, yes. Uh, you know, a very light film, um, very, light, very much like a Wes Anderson meets Woody Allen in black and white type of thing. Uh, I enjoy that uh, film quite a bit. Uh, but the one of my favorite films, I think, also at the festival, um, which I saw on Tuesday night, is a Japanese film called The Great Passage. Um, it's a, It sounds like a really boring film. Uh, it's a film about a group of dictionary editors who spend two, uh, like a decade trying to create a new dictionary that will connect 21st century colloquial slangs with traditional dictionaries. And uh, it sounds really strange, but um, it's a film directed by uh, Yuya Ishii, who uh, some may know as the director of uh, comedies like Mitsuko Delivers and um, Sawako Decides. Uh, so, you know, it, has, it retains a lot of his deadpan humor, but uh, it's also a really great story, especially for, you know, editors like me <laughs> and word, word nerds, I suppose. Um, I did watch a, a, some local premieres. Uh, there was a film called A Complicated Story. Uh, which is produced by Johnny Toe and uh, Edgo's, uh, uh, I guess, head honcho, Bill Kong. Uh, the film is uh, is produced by the um, students at the, in the MFA program of the Academy of Performing Arts. Um, and so with that kind of clout, uh, also with money from the Hong Kong government, they, they, they managed to attract stars like Jackie Chan and Stephanie Che and a lot of uh, Sherry Ying, um, you know, a few cameos as well. Um, but the film is overall pretty disappointing. Um, the script is, is actually quite bad. And a lot of the actors, I think you can see, they knew how bad the script was. But they kind of lend that much-needed professionalism to the, to, the, to the film. But overall, it's really kind of a disappointing effort considering all the, all the prestige behind it. I mean, even Johnny Toe, who is a producer on the film, uh, apparently said at the premiere that he hasn't even seen the film yet. He's just putting his name on it because... Um, uh, his one one of the kind of the top guys who used to be at Milky Way now works at the Academy of Performing Arts. So that's I think that's how the project uh, happened. So we're coming up uh, on the last several days. Uh, like I said, today I'll be watching Lawrence of Arabia on the big screen. Hopefully, if I can make it, <laughs> hopefully I won't skip it. Uh, tomorrow it will be uh, Heaven's Gate, the the Michael Camino movie, and also the the world premiere of a Hong Kong dance film called The Way We Dance from the director of. Uh, Magic Boy, um, and also an indie, a um, an indie omnibus called Free Outsiders about um, the the working working class people of Hong Kong. So that'll be very interesting. And I'll be closing the festival with a uh, closed curtain, the latest film from uh, 
Yafar Pani. I'm not even sure if I said it correctly, but the yeah the the Iranian filmmaker who was actually banned from film, filmmaking in Iran and still managed to make this film. All right. Well, that all that sounds uh, sounds like you have, still have a lot on your plate. Hopefully, you'll be able to make make all of those uh, particular screenings. What would you say about in terms of attendance? I mean, one of the things we uh, often look at and discuss here is, you know, the idea that uh, regular commercial cinema is kind of flailing in the wind as uh, digital, you know, takes its tolls. Young people are, you know, more apt to stay at home and, you know, either get stuff illegally or through legal digital means, which is more and more readily available, uh, rather than going out to the cinema. Does the attendance at the festival to you seem like it's um it's pretty standard um over these past couple years or does it seem like that there are more and more empty seats um there was actually one film that i saw called um celluloid man which is a two hour and 45 minute documentary about film a film preservation expert in india that only had like 15 people um, and that was like the worst attended uh, show I've seen in years, maybe mm-hmm. at the HKIFF. But um, I mean, many of the shows are sold out because um, I think people realize that th- these aren't just films that you can casually download. Um, especially, you know, films like, uh, uh, um, you know, like Caesar Must Die or some of the art house stuff or the, the avant-garde stuff. Uh, so you know, there's still pretty healthy attendance. Even uh, there was a I saw a Japanese indie film yesterday morning that was still you know, I think maybe two thirds full, or you know maybe sixty percent full, which is pretty good for a holiday morning you know ten thirty show. Hmm. So, uh, but I, I've been told I've heard rumors that actually attendance is overall down this year. Um, but I would like to attribute that to um, actually a lot of the films having having um, this year having already set theatrical releases. There's a lot of films that I would like to see. I would like to see, but and I realized that they're either on iTunes or they're already on 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 uh, video or they're very um or they're already uh, on. They're, you already know there's a the local distributor, so I just didn't bother. So mm-hmm. this year, actually, overall, I have chosen less films. Well, because I chose like four over four movies with four hour running times. That that also doesn't help. But yeah, I, I it, and work. But yeah, I actually got a little less interested in choosing films this year. Interesting. I wonder if we'll see the day when uh, there are actually more and more festivals being held, you know, in an online format somehow. No, I, I think I think the Hong Kong Film Festival is still very relevant. Um, I think film fans are more more willing to still watch films on a big screen. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and like I said, you know, still very well attended. Actually, my my eleven forty five p.m. screening of As Tears Go By was was full. Mm-hmm. Um. So as long as you choose to write films, uh, I think people will still show up. And and you know I I I'd give credit to the Hong Kong Film Festival for booking films like Celluloid Man, which they know won't be well uh, well attended, but they still chose it as one of their three hundred plus films. And I think it's a great thing. And and I don't think it will go away anytime soon either. All right. Well, we will hear more of your final thoughts on the Hong Kong International Film Festival. Uh, I think in our next episode, once uh, the festival's kind of wrapped things up. If I'm still alive, yeah. Yeah, which I think you will be. <laughs> Rare is the headline that we see man dies in film festivals. But they do they do suffer overdose at a dynasty. <laughs> so That's you, a different kind of overdose. Right? <laughs> An overdose of Wong Jing. 
<laughs> All right, uh, let us move on and talk about a couple news stories that happened in the month of March. Um, up first, we've got a bit of news uh, about filmmaking in China. Now, this came from uh, earlier in the month. Uh, I think the article is dated from March 3rd. Um, the title of the article is uh, Chen Kaige, uh, Beijing Air Pollution Strangling Creativity. So earlier in the month, of course, you had a lot of um, uh, political meetings going on as we've uh, had the handover of, in power and sort of the official establishment of the, uh, you know, the, the new uh, Chinese elite, the new rulers of China, Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang and others, um, officially getting their positions. And so we've also had the, and I think we talked a little bit about this last time, the CPPCC uh, meeting, and um, you've got uh, some creative people that are attending that meeting, like we mentioned last time, Jackie Chan and um, Stephen Chow and others. Uh, so Chen Gaigo was um, was talking about uh, Beijing air pollution, and he he um, didn't. It says the article says though he didn't directly say so. Chen Gaigo told reporters uh, at the opening of this year's big political conclave in Beijing, the poor quality of the capital's air has been um, making it hard for him to concentrate on his work. Um, so he's concerned. <laughs> you know, about the terrible weather, and we've all seen the pictures um, all over China, uh, or all over the the web of uh, the, the city, and, you know, just being covered in smog, so much smog that you can barely see. And um, he's kind of pointing to this as a potential problem, you know, for filmmakers. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting issue. I mean, if you want to think of Beijing and, uh, you know, as sort of a hub for a lot of the big films that are being made or produced, even if they're not being filmed directly in Beijing, at least you've got um, a lot of pre-production and a lot of post-production happening in this area. Um, and then perhaps, you know, the environment is maybe going to make people consider doing this stuff elsewhere. I mean, it would be kind of like if um, there was some major environmental issues happening in Hollywood would... Uh, would the film studios uh, decide to pick up stakes and, and perhaps go elsewhere? Um, it's, it's certainly very speculative uh, at this point, but it's, uh, I think it's an interesting issue nonetheless. I mean, Kevin, do you have any uh, thoughts on this? I mean, as a young, uh, upcoming, uh, aspiring film worker, would you consider, you know, like Peng Ho-Chung relocating to Beijing for a number of years um, to take up some writing jobs or something if uh, you had the offer? And would the environment be of concern to you? Uh, well, first of all, I, I would not move to China, I think. Um, just a matter of the the culture and, and the great firewall and, yes, like you said, the weather and things like that. Um, and and also, if if the pollution is really a problem on Chen Kaige's creativity, then, then, you know, the air must have been bad for about a decade now, I guess, in Beijing. <laughs> Plus, plus, I mean, he shot his latest film. He didn't even shoot his latest film in 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 Beijing. He shot in Ningbo, uh, which is like very far away from Beijing. So, so I, you know, I think it's just an excuse. I mean, the air is a bad is, is a bad problem. Um, I'm not gonna I, I'm not gonna deny that. But you know, it's just funny that Chen Kaige, you know, I guess one of the most hated directors among netizens these days in in China, you know, goes and blames his creativity, his lack of creativity on the air. <laughs> things i mean i'm sure people are way more thankful that that he didn't blame the netizens this time hmm. for for affecting his creativity so um i just find that whole whole, whole thing kind of uh, amusing actually well we will have to you know see if uh 
the weather continues to uh, have an impact on, on his work. I, I wonder if I can do that here in Hong Kong. You know, like. Uh, yeah, we start we start blaming the air because yeah, yeah my, my my film criticism sucks because you know because of the yeah. air. Sorry, no podcasters this week because I'm blaming the air. <laughs> <laughs> the air is stifling our creativity. Yes. All right. Uh, last bit of news for this week uh, that we want to talk about is related to one of the films we're going to talk about in just a little bit, and that is Finding Mr. Right. Um, this article coming from Jane Stars, dated I believe it's uh, yeah uh, March twenty seventh. And uh, says that merely six days after its release, romantic comedy Finding Mr. Right has already reached 100 million RMB in the mainland Chinese box office. The film has beat out Hollywood big-budget films such as Resident Evil Retribution 3D, uh, A Good Day to Die Hard, and the heavily promoted Jack the Giant Slayer. Um, so good news for, uh, I guess, this film, and uh, particularly for Miss Tang Wei, who's uh, beaten the industry blacklist that she's been on for a number of years. And, um, you know, because of uh, her role in Lust Caution. Oops. What was that? Is that your phone coming off? Not mine. Hmm. Maybe my wife's. Sorry about that. Um, so, yeah, she was under, under a, a film blacklist in mainland China. Her films could not work there. Her films could not be shown there for a number of years because of, you know, the uh, adult themes in in the, her role in the film Lust Caution, even though I think the film did get a screening in mainland, didn't it? Lust Caution, Lust Caution was shown in the mainland for, uh, in, in a censored form for, for a while, actually yeah. for a couple of weeks, and it was a huge hit, uh, and then it got abruptly pulled. Yeah. And, but now the blacklist is over, and this film's doing fairly well, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about it in just a moment. But, uh, you know, good on her for riding out and finding success with this film. Well, actually, she she's been off the blacklist since um, maybe twenty twenty eleven because I mean she she did um actually she did Crossing Hennessy, which played in well her 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 managing uh, her manager management agency is actually Edco Hong Kong's Edco, but she's done films like Crossing Hennessy and uh, Founding of a Party uh, no not Founding of a Party sorry she did Wuxia and Speed Angels all of which um uh did did get played and also late autumn all four films mm. did get played in china but this uh, is really her first mainland china role right her full mainland chinese product and i well i guess her full mainland um mainland her first film by a mainland director yeah. actually yes yeah so um I'm, you know i'm glad the film's doing well and hopefully she'll get more work as a result and we'll talk more about the film in just a moment but first, let me play this. Where is that coming from? Are you hearing that? Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll turn off my phone. Okay. I think it's my phone, but uh, I've never done that before. And there's no phone call coming in, so <clears throat> weird. All right, um, <clears throat> that was a terrible transition. So let me play this again. All right, so we have two East Screen films to talk about for this week. Up first, uh, Wang Jing's latest. That is Princess and Seven Kung Fu Masters. Um, so Kevin, can you give us a Brief synopsis of Princess and Seven Kung Fu Masters. 
Oh, oh yeah, sure. I actually kind of want to do Finding Mr. Right, but okay. Uh, okay, so so uh, Prince of the Seven Kung Fu Masters, uh, kind of a film long in development. I guess it was shooting, I think, in early 2012 because uh, I remember the scandal that happened, which we will talk about uh, a little later. But yeah, the film is the latest comedy from Wong Jing, uh, who last gave us the super serious um, uh, gangster drama Last Tycoon, which, by the way, features great English subtitles. <laughs> I wonder who could have done those. <laughs> yes, I wonder. <laughs> because this is Wong Jing's um, with, with, with one caveat, right? What? What? With, with one caveat in there. Uh, something about a plane. Oh, God. <laughs> Why do you remind me? <laughs> I was just talking to. I was just telling someone about that the other day. Yes. If you watch the last tycoon, pay attention when they talk about a plane, and if you notice the discrepancy, send all emails to the Golden Rock at hotmail.com. No, that's not his email. Send 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 emails to eastscreen at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to re- reply. <laughs> no, this is not done by me. I'm going to change the name to 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 Alan Smithy. Uh, <laughs> I did not do the subtitles for the latest Wang Jing film. Uh, sorry, that was a good transition. Uh, a comedy that takes place um, in the... Uh, I forgot what period. I think 1930s. Yeah, China? it's the nationalist period. Yeah, nationalist period. Uh, it's about a fantasy village. Um, I don't remember the village's name anymore. Uh, the village was called... Uh, da, 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 I've got it here. Uh, this is how professional we Lucky are. Star Town. Yeah, a lucky star town, which is kind of like a, a paradise on Earth, because amidst the, the, the chaos outside the, in the real world, there's this really happy village where um, seven retired Kung Fu masters um, reside. Uh, they are played by, respectively, played by um, Eric Zeng, Sandra Eng, Ronald Chang, Wan Cho Lam, uh, Nally Man Yao. I, I rarely call her Nally, but there it is. Uh, Yuan Hua. Um, is that even seven? Oh, and I guess Shanna counts as one, right? Yeah, yeah Shanna counts. She was the noodle girl, right? Yeah, the noodle girl. Yeah, she counts as seven, even though she doesn't really have a um, talent. So each of them has like a hidden power, which uh, Paul has written down in the notes section. So I'll let him let him um, go over that in a bit. But so it starts there, so that anyone who tries to get into a town or quickly um, it starts trouble, or quickly kicked out by these these kung fu masters. Um, but nearby there is a uh, evil Japanese base, and um, a group of rebels uh, have tried to go in and steal a very, uh, I think, important treasure, and only to be caught and and killed. And one of them, one of the survivors, uh, managed to get into the happy, lucky, fortunate star uh, town, uh, and is saved by the kung fu master. Even though um, she is mistaken to be a man because she is the she comes from the school of tomboys with the short hair and whatever and um and she's saved by uh the daughter of a general a patriotic general played by samu tong uh uh, samu hong uh sorry the girl is kimmy kimmy tong the girl who is uh, the daughter of a general and she saves the young rebel who she believes to be a man takes her to the town um and the seven kung fu masters they save her but then um, uh, it starts kind of a love triangle because the Wang Chulam character is actually in love with the young general's daughter and is jealous by the, the threat of this new um, uh, patriotic soldier. Um, but then, of course, the plot goes on and the seven, peri- the seven warriors are kind of dragged into the fight um, as the evil Japanese come closer. Uh, the, Japanese, the evil Japanese led by, uh, led by Joe Ku. 
by the way, uh, who is kind of a welcome presence back on the screen. Uh, but uh, that's pretty much the general uh, plot. Clearly, I'm very rusty at this, and I don't remember much of the film already, you know, which is a good thing, because uh, generally I remember how bad a Wang Jing movie is when I talk about it, but when I don't remember much of it, that means it's actually not that bad. Um, so it's kind of like The Incredibles, except, you know, they're not a family, and this movie is dumber. Um, but the film is very funny, actually, when, when the film is focused on the seven warriors, uh, the way they, they interact with each other, um, and, and when they show off their powers, actually quite fun to watch and see how they, uh, it's kind of very sitcom Um, and you know, it, it, it kind of like that, you know, Wang Jing is good at sitcom humor and, uh, and that really is the best part about the film. Um, but the film isn't so good when it's, when they go into subplot, there's a, um, extended uh sequence when when uh the general's daughter is trying to hide the the wounded soldier from the dad and they do this whole hide and seek thing and you know that really goes on way longer than it should have uh and it wasn't very funny so that's and it takes focus away from the seven warriors so so that's when the film was kind of falling a little flat um but actually when it's about the seven warriors it has one of the best watching jokes i've seen in a long time uh i won't i won't i won't spoil it but you see it when it gets there, because yeah. it actually is the funniest joke in the film, and it really is the best one. And if you know Wang Jing humor, especially early Wang Jing, you'll immediately recognize <laughs> the gag, and it is a good gag. Yes, actually, it is a very traditional Wang Jing uh, gag, kind of a lowbrow thing, but, you know, it, it's funny, so what can you do? Um, the the serious villain uh, Japanese side plot just doesn't really quite match it. Um, it it kind of felt like it has to be there, you know, to 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 um, satisfy Chinese audiences. In fact, they could have set the story any other time, you know, when there's Chinese villains or back in the ancient days, because you know the, the town has no electricity. Also, it has no electricity anyway, so it's it's like some ancient period town in 1930s China, which doesn't really make sense to me. Um, so they could have set it any other time, but then they had to kind of uh, cater to Chinese audiences with that whole Japanese evil Japanese thing and. And uh, it's not the fact that I'm, it's not the it's not whether I'm comfortable with it or not. It's just you know it just kind of felt unneeded, you know. Um, there's a surprising amount of special effects because a lot of these uh, special powers I guess needed to be needed to be expressed with special effects, and they were actually not that bad considering this director who brought us Future X Cops and also done by the same same uh, special effects firm. So it actually isn't that bad. Um, the the action there's also a lot of action a lot of martial arts uh, action and and they're actually quite good if you care about that kind of stuff uh, for me I was kind of numbed by it after a while especially because um, the, the 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 final uh, the final fight uh, takes so long and there's so much so much fighting going on just kind of numb just kind of mind numbing um, but it's really not that bad. Um, of course, the, a lot of the things about the plot doesn't quite make sense. Uh, thinking about the Wong, the the Wan Chou Lam uh, love triangle, um, but to 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 go into why it doesn't make sense means I'm gonna have to ruin the the funniest Wan Jing gag in years. So I will not, I will not do so. Uh, but it really doesn't make any sense to me. It just felt like they were doing it to you know create humor later on, uh, but. Yeah, whatever. It didn't really work. Um, so in the end, it, you know, it's not a great film. It's not a fun. It's not a particularly uh, memorable film, uh, as you can tell from my plot, plot synopsis. Uh, but it is above average Wang Jing, which means it's still bad, but it's kind of worth watching. 
So, so I guess uh, Wanjing fans will really like this one. Uh, for me, I think it's uh, at least worth a TVing it. Uh, at least on like a lazy Sunday afternoon when you're watching it on like a, a paid movie channel or something, which uh, I suspect will happen in about two months. So yeah, that's uh, Princess and the Seven Warriors. Uh, Paul. Yeah. So basically, this is kind of like Wanjing and the not so magnificent Seven <laughs> in terms of plot because uh, you've got you know these seven specialists and you know they're in a town and you know at some point that the bad guys are going to come and attack the town um so each master is kind of a little bit odd and and plays to their specialty sandrum um plays a character who the translation of her name is madonna she runs an inn and and uh, she shouts basically she's like can do a super sonic shout and you see this uh, played out in the trailer but actually it's pretty effective and it works you know for the character type that she ends up typically being assigned to play um wong cho lam plays a very effeminate sort of uh tailor and he's very good at uh using needles and uh, needle and thread is sort of his specialty um ronald chang he's a little bit of an enigma he's like sort of the town sales guy he like walks around um selling stuff and and uh, but he's also got you know special kung fu skills of his own uh yun wa uh, his character is like the town spiritualist. Uh, I th- I think he's a he's a like a Taoist. Uh, he he's supposed to be a Taoist priest. Yeah, I think he's a priest. Yeah, yeah. yeah not a, I forgot what he was doing in the film. Yeah, <laughs> sure. um, but um, he's also got uh, you know a crush on on one of the people in the town. Uh, Eric Zhang, uh, he has he has a, his name is Many Sons because apparently <laughs> he's got a lot of kids and in fact his kung fu specialty is. He carries a baby around, but the baby is actually a wooden baby. And then he beats people with the wooden baby, um, which is just kind of odd and weird. Um, it doesn't and, make sense. How can you have many sons and there's no mention of a wife? Yeah, and he also has a crush on uh, on a person. So I, I, I guess it's because he's promiscuous. Is or the, his wife is probably dead. Or yeah, is the, is, the, is, the, is the idea. Um, and then uh, Natalie Mang Mengyao, uh, she plays the... Um, I, I guess she's both a prostitute and she's like a mama-san. She's, you know, she runs a brothel, basically. And she's got, her specialty is a variation of the sort of Wang Fei-hong no-shadow kick, um, you know, under her skirt and and her, um, you know, her uh, her girls are also proficient in this, you know, so you can call it like the hooker hidden kick uh, that, they, that they utilize, except uh, that uh, there's a, there's a little secret to their kick as well, which uh, I won't spoil. Um, I, I want a spinoff. I want a Wang Jing spinoff about that brothel. Yeah. A cat- category-free spinoff. Uh, sure. Uh, <laughs> maybe you'll probably have better luck getting a um, Pang Ho Chung to do it. <laughs> uh, and then finally is um, is uh, Xiena as Noodle Girl. But she is like the sister of um, Sandra M's character. And initially... There's like a love triangle with Ronald Chang and Sandrum and 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 Noodle Girl, who's named Hung in the film. But she never really, they never really show her doing anything. So you're never really sure of her kung fu specialty. I'm wondering if there's some footage that got cut with her doing some things. Because right early on, it's like she seems to be doing some special stuff when she's making the noodles. But she never really does anything in, in any of the fight scenes. Um <clears throat> So yeah, that's the seven, and they're all interesting, they're all quirky, and they probably all could use a little bit more focus, 
Um, as Kevin mentioned, the plot kind of shifts away from them to focus on these uh, nationalist agents and then the Japanese agents. And then there's also um, these mercenaries who are part of this group called, uh, I think it's the Tiger's Den or something, which are kind of like these um, uh, these martial artists, but they're kind of uh, bad guys for hire who end up working with uh, the, the antagonists in the film. Um but it is nice to see Samo here. Samo plays uh, the warlord who is the dad of the character Princess. Um, and he's, uh, you know, he gets a couple action scenes and it's nice to see him doing some stuff still. Um, but there are a couple sort of lazy overhead shots which are just set up in such a way so you can see it's very obviously not Samo doing <laughs> some of the quick, uh, more active, uh, long action sequences. Um which is unfortunate, you know, because he does do some of, you know, some of the fighting when it uh, comes to some of the close-ups and some of the shorter shots. And, I mean, he still looks good doing what he's doing, but he is getting up there in age. And I know that they probably have to get more more doubles in for him. It's just that uh, if they're going to do that, they need to probably take a bit more time with some of the cinematography to make sure that it's not so obvious that that wasn't Samo we just saw. I can imagine that it's kind of hard to find doubles for Samo. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine or, too. Or a lot of cotton. <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, so yeah, you get some other, you know, uh, some other fun stuff in here. There's ninjas, uh, there's silver bronze men. So it's, if you know what bronze men are, well, we have bronze men, except they're not bronze, they're silver, um, who come in and, and, you know, serve as sort of the fighting fodder at various points. Dennis Toe shows up for a split second. You know, I, you, you see Dennis Toe on screen and you're expecting him because he's kind of got a bigger name now. You're expecting him to be on screen for a bit longer but he's just like there and he's not there um and uh <clears throat> so it's just a small cameo for him but overall it's a good mix of of action and laughs from wong jing who i would say this is um a nice move back to some of his his earlier stuff um and uh i do think that uh, you know it's not the it's not the best wong jing film out there but it is nice especially coming off of um the other film the last tycoon it seems like his level of quality has gotten a little better. Um, hopefully, this is a trend that will that will stick around for a bit. Because um, I've always liked Wild Jing, <clears throat> and um, I tend to probably like a lot of his stuff a little bit more than some of the other people in our cinema circles. Um, but that being said, I, I think that this is probably one of the better things he's done in recent years. But also, I do agree with Kevin, that it's kind of lazy that they did take the sort of the nationalist and the Japanese route. Although, you know, Joku, it was great to see her. She could have been a villain of any nationality, really. And I think that this film would, you know, the it, it does feel a bit disjointed because you've got this sort of nationalist period and people dressed up in sort of the, uh, the, the Western-style nationalist uniforms. And you've got the character of Princess, who's wearing sort of you know lace and, and, and Western gear, and that's fine. But then you they get to this to the village, um, to Lucky Star Town, and it's like everybody looks like they're out of the Qing or the Ming Dynasty, um, and there's no electricity, and it's sort of this very old style village. And again, it sets up that they're trying to be sort of isolated from rest of society, and they don't want to have contact with the rest of the society, which is fine. But uh, as Kevin said, they you know this story really could have been told in any time or any early time period with any villain, you know, it, it didn't necessarily have to be the Japanese. Um, so that's kind of an easy, maybe lazy choice in terms of the writing. Um, but other than that, I think it, it, it is still 
um, very enjoyable for Wong Jing. Now, there was some controversy around the film uh, during the time of production last year involving, um, um, was it Rose Chan or who, which? Yeah, Rose Chan and yeah. uh, two other actors who weren't in the film, actually. Yeah, um, apparently there was a bit of sexual harassment that happened uh, offset during one of the evening dinners or something, and it was a big news over here. It wasn't anything completely untoward. It was basically she was being kind of uh, harassed, bullied at, at the dinner, um, and a big, you know, photos were taken, and the photos got out, and a big deal was kind of made up, and she was apparently very upset as a result. And, you know, I don't know. Did that have, do you think that had any impact on the release of the film, Kevin? Um, that the, you know, the fact that we got it this year instead of last year. I, I did wonder, but it did, you know, like all, um, all entertainment industry scandals, the film just kind of went away. Um, the film shooting continued and, and, um, I, I, I think maybe the film was shelved for other reasons. I'm not sure why, maybe special effects. Uh, I wasn't sure why, but yeah, it was done for a while. And then, uh, and then it didn't come out for a while. That's the, that's the only thing I know. I mean, it kind of, it, it. Looking at the poster and the and the cast, it it kind of feels a bit like a New Year film in some ways, although it doesn't kind of end with that that traditional sort of New Year film ending and greeting. But it looks like it could have easily been worked in there. I mean, it's, <clears throat> it was pushed back, right? I mean, it was pushed back from the February release, right? Yeah. Because it was actually kind of meant to be the second New Year slot film. Yeah. But I think if we were to compare it with um, you know this year's New Year films, it, it you know it was comparable. Especially with the Alan Tam one, right? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> that was pretty bad. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah. If you tend to like Wong Jing as I do, I'd say it kind of this is a this is a see it. Uh, other other people, other folks, you can you know TV it. All right, let us move on to talk about our next film, and that is Finding Mister Right. Uh, so Kevin, you said you wanted to talk about this one, so why don't you introduce this one too? <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, when I wanted to click on the Wikipedia page, so I got the names right. <laughs> Give me one second. Okay. Here we go. Finding Mr. Wright is the second film from writer director, uh, Shrey Shaolu, who last actually made, um, Ocean Heaven, the gentle, uh, drama starring Jet Li and Won Jiang. Um, there's a much more commercial film uh, but produced by this, essentially the same people uh the film stars tom way uh, as a uh oh crap not to look at the names i think your name Sorry. is jaja right jaja but i kind of want to start over so i can't <laughs> okay. so i can make the names uh so I, so it doesn't seem so uh uh so it seems so natural so give me a second while i look up the names okay here we go let's start this again Okay, Finding Mr. Wright is the second film from writer director uh, Shui Xiao Lu, who uh, made her directorial debut with um, Ocean Heaven, the drama starring Jet Li and Wen Jiang. Uh, she's actually been a longtime scriptwriter. Um, I forgot what she's written before, but she's a very high profile scriptwriter, actually. So, this is her uh, more commercial uh, romantic comedy uh, work. The film stars Tang Wei as Jia Jia a quote-unquote single lady who um, we first see going to America, kind of nervous and, and trying to get a visa, uh, which actually doesn't make sense. But we'll talk about that why a little later. 
um, doesn't make sense, but she get managed to get into to to uh, America, a uh, Seattle to be specific, and then we 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 quickly find out that it's because she's pregnant, um, and that uh, she's she's actually a mistress for a rich Chinese businessman, and that she's been sent to Seattle um, to to give birth essentially because um, the one child policy in China doesn't really recognize uh, her baby because of her mistress status. So she figured out if she has birth, uh, she gives birth, she can give birth in, in America. Uh, I'm not sure if giving birth in America automatically makes the baby a, an American citizen. I believe I so, yeah. It does, right? Okay. So kind of like actually a, a situation that Hong Kongers also deal with. So yeah, it's, uh, it's the whole um, political issue of what they call anchor babies. Yes, yes. Um, so of course that that doesn't really work in Hong Kong anymore, but apparently it still works in America. So there are these kind of centers uh, in America for these uh, pregnant um, uh, women who want their baby to get citizenship. Um, so this is one of the stories. Uh, her driver is Frank, a uh, by Wu Xiaobo, who we last see, who we last saw as the casual villain in uh, Gordon Chance the Four. Um, but here he's a really nice guy named Frank, who is uh, her driver. And after the um, the pregnancy center, that uh, the birth center that she she booked uh, gets raided by the cops, um, Frank takes her to uh, another house run by a Taiwanese woman played by Elaine Jin. Um, and of course, being a gold digger, a spoiled gold digger, Tang Wei uh, kind of throws her weight around. Uh, Jia Jia throws her weight around the other woman, uh, throws her money, thinking she can get her way. Um, and it's initially very unlikable, but um, and meanwhile the her her man uh, keeps um, uh, and reneging on uh, on their the dates, their appointments, and we never see who he, who he is, um, which kind of starts to get to Jaja, um, who is of course a stranger in a strange land, not to use a a cliche, uh, but thanks to Frank. Um, she begins to kind of lighten up and become nicer and. Uh, you know, as her baby starts to come, you know, she runs into some crisis, and we also find out more about the other woman in the house. And of course, like any good romantic comedy, she begins to fall in love with Frank. Um, but actually, that's only about halfway into the story. So, so, so we see their relationship develop, and and how Frank is the best man ever, and why any any woman would be a fool to not be with him. Uh, and it's that kind of film. Um, so, it, but of course, she she still has to, you know. She still has the man who is the 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 father of her baby, so so that's kind of that kind of makes up the rest of the film. Um, it's a very typical Hollywood style romantic comedy. You have a unique situation that you know an odd couple, um, two people who don't really get along with each other, but manage to you know strike up some kind of chemistry in the in the process. Um, but a very Chinese topic, uh, like like Paul, you were saying, it's an anchor baby issue. You know, woman who. Who are um, who can't give birth because you know they're mistresses or they can't have a account for their babies, and they, have, they also want to secure a, a citizenship of another country for their babies. Um, another issue that we dealt with in Hong Kong for a while until they tightened up on the regulations. Uh, so it's actually a very um, <clears throat> relevant topic for Chinese people. Um, Taiwan has a really tough task of playing an an annoying mistress, uh, an annoying gold digger, uh, without coming off unlikable. And personally, I thought she kind of failed. Um, I think she needed a director who can really uh, tone that down and keep her in control. But, um, you know, they kind of played it up a little too much, uh, I think, in the, especially in the first half. And she was kind of a really unlikable character. Uh, 
thankfully, Wu Xiubo, who is actually a real surprise here um, as Frank. Yes, he, he he is a really nice guy, and he doesn't really have much else going for him. But I thought it's really uh, it lends a really nice presence to the film, and um, I think he already wins the Best Man Ever Award this year at the Love McShay Film Awards. Uh, personally, that's that's what I think. Uh, nice to see Teresa Lee uh, have a cameo. She plays a uh, doctor in uh, Seattle who speaks English and Chinese. Um, it's a little weird sp- hearing her speak Mandarin, but yeah, a very welcome. Uh, cameo here um the story is very enjoyable actually it's light and never really too demanding like i said oh it's so so she's in this sitcomy situation and and you know she runs in these crises uh, crises and that's really most of the film um the second half does feel a little rushed though especially when you go into the the romance um you, you, i get an idea that um um shui xiaolu actually wrote a very long story and that uh, as a writer of a TV drama, she can't really control that kind of uh, urge to rewrite this extended story. I mean, the film takes place over the course of about a year, so there's a lot of story that can be told. Um, and the second half feels like a lot of stuff cut, especially in the, in the third act. Um, there's also one seriously huge plot hole, and that's one of these crises that we that, that I was just talking about. It doesn't really kill the film, but it's really distracting. And I think if you think about if you think about a little more, then it's actually quite obvious. But uh, that's kind of a spoiler, so um, I won't go into it. Um, but, but part of the problem is that this whole concept of uh, the Tangwei Jaja character uh, doesn't speak English, but then Tangwei is trying to pretend to not speak English, but then she, you know, that Tangwei speaks English. Uh, because she did an entire film in English, so so here her trying to come off as not speaking English, but then not really doing it well. Um, it's really distracting. Actually, it's what a problem with one of the problems that led to this this plot hole. Um, uh, but the film is now a hit, so I anticipate a thirty episode TV series to come in a few years, uh, because you know all successful Chinese films uh, eventually become TV series. Um, the Seattle locales look really pretty. Um, probably because the film was shot in Vancouver, just like Hollywood. So it really is an emulation, you know, a- emulation of a Hollywood film. You know, it's even shot in yeah, Hollywood and like 90% of all TV shows now too. <laughs> yes, exactly. So yes, it's just like a Hollywood film, you know, including the, the, even the scene in New York, you can tell it's like, that's not New York. That's like Vancouver. What the hell? <laughs> right. So, so that, that's kind of funny. Um, I also really like the, of course the film takes place in Seattle, so there is actually a lot of reference, not a lot of references, but there are references to Sleepers in Seattle. It's kind of a meta thing. Um, and I kind of like it. You know, it, it's really nice to see, you know, um, it even goes that far of the Hollywood emulate, emulating Hollywood thing. Uh, references to older films, uh, really meta and things like that. But, you know, it's just nice little touches that adds to the film. So anyone who says that it, it's liberally borrowing from from Sleepers in Seattle just has this mentality that, you know, just because Chinese, when when Chinese films, they, they refer to anything, it's automatically copying or borrowing. Um, and I think anyone who, who makes that accusation hasn't seen the film or it's just, you know, lazy journalists looking for some some narrative um, when it's not true. I think the film, uh, it's just playing with the formula and uh, I quite like that kind of meta thing in a film. I think it works quite well. Um, hey, at least they didn't play Unforgettable, which is really, that, that's when you're directly liberal, uh, when you're directly borrowing from Sleepers in Seattle. Um, it's not a great film, but I, I think it's a great date movie. Um, 
unless you're young and poor and your girlfriend is looking for a really talented doctor who will be good to her no matter what. I am not talking about myself. By the way, uh, but but yes, it will be. Uh, it might be quite awkward if your girlfriend is looking for alternative options, and then she sees the Frank character on screen, and then she looks at you, and then you realizes that you're really a loser. Um, so that might not be a quite a good date, but otherwise, actually, it's a great date movie. Um, so so yeah, I I, I think it's very flawed, but um, it's very enjoyable. So uh, definitely see it, Paul. Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, I think it's great that the uh, the Tang Wei is back, uh, able doing you know full fledged movies uh, out of China now. So her first China project is about passing China's or bypassing China's one child policy and the hukou <laughs> system issues. I was very um, surprised. Yes, that that got and also it. breaking U.S. law. So she's uh, going to be an international <laughs> <laughs> offender. <laughs> um, so kudos to to Ms. Wei. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, this film, she proved in this film and is, is that I think she does have, uh, the ability to reshape herself in some interesting ways. I mean, uh, I think the last thing I saw her in was Speed Angels, right? Was that last year or two years ago? Um, uh, yeah, 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 earlier, earlier last year. Yes. Yeah, which was not a good film. Um, but she always comes off as as being very likable uh, in the roles that she does. So what she did here, she took a very unlikable character. I really did not like her character at the start of this movie. But by the end, she transformed it into somebody that I liked. And it's interesting because this film was not what I expected. When you And we talked about this a little bit after the movie. When you watch the trailer for this movie... You don't get, you don't have really any idea what this story is about. Um, yes, the film really sold the stars because, well, yeah. I mean, because Tanway is Echo's girl, so they really sold the stars. That's like yeah. any other. I had, I had a completely different, different concept of what I thought this movie was going to be be about than what it was actually about, which I liked. I was surprised by by the story, and and I ended up liking the movie more. Um, but her ability to sort of shift my opinion of her from the start of the film to the end of the film. Uh, I think points to the, a little bit of the writing of the story, but also her characterization of uh, Jaja. The supporting characters, though, really make this film fun, and I, I felt that we didn't get enough of them. Um, the the other ladies that she ends up staying with at this house um, were very interesting, and and I really wanted to see more of their relationship. I mean, we get it a little bit, but I, I wanted to see them go through you know, their, their, their trials a, a little bit more together and, and her go, be, starting from this outsider, unlikable position to really becoming, you know, more close with them um, and, and really looking at this whole enigma of, you know, the Anchor Babies idea, concept, and, and how this process kind of goes through. Um, a little bit more closely, you know, the, the, the different perspectives, the perspective of the, the woman who's doing it and why she's doing it. And I mean, we get little glimpses here and there, but, um, I think that, I think they could have spent a bit more time on that perhaps than some of the, you know, romantic comedy cliches that we get in a few places. Um, but yeah, do you think the like writer liked Sleepless in Seattle much? Because they do... <laughs> There is a lot of meta here. Um, there's one, there's a couple interesting shots too, which um, 
one of our one of our friends pointed out, and I noticed as well, that they use some stock footage here that looks really old. Yes. Um, they use some stock footage like of a taxi going across uh, the the bridge to New York, and it's just like, wow, is that like from the 1980s? <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I'm not sure if they were, you know, kind of limited by the budget on what they could do in terms of getting some of that, um, some of those outside shots. Um, but that being said, um, you know, it's got an interesting soundtrack. It, it's not all Chinese music. They mix things up um, because this is sort of a, a, a continent-hopping film in some ways, and so the the soundtrack's interesting. Uh, yeah, Teresa Lee, kind of from out of nowhere, just <laughs> is, like, suddenly there on the screen, like, where have you been lately? I mean, we haven't seen her in ages. Um, so it's nice to see her. And then, uh, yeah, I, th I think that... Uh, the the whole because the way they kind of set this up with her kind of going through immigration which to me seems weird now and, and Makes we, no sense. we we talked about this a little bit uh she she's basically at the immigration line waiting to get um her visa um from the immigration officer which is not how i mean my understanding of the visa process works either coming to china or going to the u.s so I've got the experience of getting a China visa and, and how that, you know, experience goes through. And then I've got the experience of my wife getting a visa um, to the United States. And in each case, the visa is approved beforehand and you know how much time you're going to be granted. The immigration officer is basically just there to, you know, look at your picture, look at your documentation, make sure everything is in order and kind of stamp it. So yeah, America doesn't give landing visas, especially yeah, to Chinese people. It's a it's a little weird in in that respect, and maybe there's a little bit of, you know, alteration to try and add a little tension or something to to the way the narrative's going to work. Um, and so yeah, that that you know that's a little bit problematic. But I think for the general audience who maybe doesn't travel that much, they're not going to care about those minor minor details um but overall the really all the performances are really top-notch and it is a good story there are a couple moments there are a couple of the, the the problems that arise to create tension you can kind of scratch your head and go well wait a minute why did you know why why are they doing that and there's an and they, they address one at the end like there's a, a scene where the the characters are kind of missing each other and you, you're thinking wait a minute don't these people have phones you know, and you know it's the modern era. It's not the 1980s, right? Um, but then they actually do, you know, kind of speak to that point. So it is a it is a cleverly written script, and it's fun, and it's got some humor in places. It's got some serious moments in places, and it's uh, it's overall I really enjoyed the story. So I'd say yeah, it's definitely one to see, especially if you like Tangway, which I do. All right, so that's our East screen for this week. I think we're going to move on. And I'll play this. East Green, West Green. All right, so we don't have a West Screen film for this week, so I thought I'd throw in a couple short uh, video picks uh, very briefly. And I've been, in, in the interim of moving, I've been watching a lot of stuff on video, uh, in part because I've... I've needed to catch up on stuff um, because we're getting ready to uh, do the Love Hong Kong Film Awards here in, in a couple weeks. So I've been catching up on a lot of stuff from 2012, 
And I've also not had any time to go out and see movies because we've been packing and unpacking stuff and arranging stuff. And so in my moments of free time and my travel to and from work, I've been watching a lot of rentals and stuff uh, that I've gotten on video. Uh, so I had two things that I just wanted to kind of highlight as, as potential video picks. Both of these can be got off of iTunes, although I think one of them is on iTunes Hong Kong. I don't know if it's on iTunes US, uh, but the other one is on iTunes US. It's also on um, Amazon uh, Video. So you can, if you've got accounts in either of those places, you can check it out. So the first one is Super Capitalist. Now, um, if you're not sure what that film is, it is a film from 2012 last year uh, that was released. Uh, this is an independent film from a director, Simon Yin, and written by Derek Ting, um, who is also kind of the star. Um, it also stars uh, some people, Linus Roach and, uh, let's see, Kathy Yuen, who are you know pretty much a, a lot of new faces because this is an independent film, but they did manage to pull on Richard M and Kenneth Tsang, both um, veteran Hong Kong actors. Uh, there are also a couple other Hong Kong faces that uh, you might recognize if you're an active person who follows Hong Kong. Uh, Vivek Mahubani has a small role. He's a local comedian, former uh, MF, uh, MFA classmate of mine over at City. And um, actually, I don't think he was in MFA. I think he was in the BA program when I was in MA, the MFA program. Uh, but we were there at the same time. Uh, he's gotten very popular in local comedian circles in Hong Kong. Uh, former teacher of mine, Lester Chan, also has a small role in this film. It's an it's a small indie production. It kind of came from out of nowhere. It got a little bit of screen time over here, and none of us got a chance to go out and see it. Um, but it's now available for rent um, on iTunes, and so I finally took it took the time to download it. And actually, it was a lot better than I had initially expected. Now that being said, it's not a great film by any any means. But as an independent film, um, it's passable. It's um, it's got a uh, about a 4.3 rating over on IMDb. Rotten Tomatoes had it listed by, from the critics at 18%, which is pretty terrible. But the user score was pretty high at 82%. So, you know, I don't know, find a middle ground in there somewhere. And uh, so basically this film is sort of a combination. You take Wall Street and you take Lan Kwai Fong and you mix it up for expats and... This is what you have. Um, it tells the story of a young trader uh, named Connor Lee, who is sort of a whiz kid, and his boss um, um, of this company, this super cap company, uh, wants to send him to Hong Kong to help with um, a trade and acquisition of a company called Fei and Chang. Fei and Chang is owned by uh, two brothers. Uh, Kenneth Tsang, who played by Kenneth Tsang and, and Richard M. And um, they are, you know, uh, the, 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 there's a chance that the company might go under. And so uh, Connor Lee, who's played by Derek Ting, is there to sort of look over their books and, uh, you know, see what can be done to sort of, you know, liquidate the company and make a profit for him, even though they're minority shareholders. Um, so... There's a lot to do with, you know, the, the trading and acquisition and things. And the, this is a family company. And so you've got the perspective of, you know, you can't just look at this company as numbers and there are people's lives and jobs and, and 
legacies that are involved. So they try and take, you know, this, the, the, the Western angle of profit versus the sort of Asian angle of family and family values kind of a thing. Um, and so as Connor comes to Hong Kong, he hooks up with a couple other um, uh, local players who also uh, work for the big company that's trying to overtake Fan Chang. And then um, they go, he, he gets introduced to Hong Kong and sort of the highfalutin expat lifestyle that none of us have ever tasted over here. <laughs> um, and that is like, you know, spending nights out in Lang Kwai Fong, lots of hookers, lots of blow, you know, and, and just the whole, you know, high roller lifestyle. Um, but then when he meets Natalie Wang, who's an associate over at Fei and Chang, um, she starts to show him the other side of Hong Kong. This is the side that we live in, the side where you're eating street food and you're just kind of living, you know, sort of the day-to-day uh, non-expat life, if you, if, you, if, if you know what that's like over here. Um, and so he starts to appreciate... Uh, the other side of Hong Kong. Unfortunately, the script is a little bit preachy and it's a little bit like, um, so for example, in, in one place they go to Macau. It's like they, 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 he, they feel the need to explain everything to you. So they go to Macau and in order to um, get the son of the president of Fan Chang to release some information, he has to beat him at a game of Baccarat. And so... <laughs> the guy actually explains the rules of Baccarat to him and to the audience right there on screen. So, you know, it's kind of very sort of color by numbers. And then they go through points of Chinese culture, things like, uh, you know, relationships, Guanhai or Guanxi. And, you know, they're, so it's, it's a very sort of in your face. Oh, there's Guanxi here. You have to have good Guanxi and this is how you get it. And, you know, it's sort of very kind of uh, just connect the dots or color by numbers in terms of some of the writing. So it's not fantastic writing, but there are some nice moments in here. Again, you get solid performances from Richard and Kenneth Tsang. Richard has most of his dialogue in English, um, which is interesting, though there is some Cantonese kind of thrown in in places. Uh, and overall, it's, you know, it's not, it's not terrible. It's not a great film, but as an independent film, uh, it's kind of okay. I think the budget was like $600,000 or something. And it actually looks really nice. Um, you know, and I think there's some relationship between this film and um, there was another film that kind of focused on Hong Kong, Largo Winch. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the people in this film worked on Largo Winch, and I, so I think they used some of those connections to make this film come about. So um, visually, you know, it's got some, some nice visuals in it, and... Uh, the, the story is, you know, kind of okay. There's a backstory about Connor Lee and his dad, and, um, you know, he's got old ties to Hong Kong, and they never really, unfortunately, spend too much time with that. But the, the biggest problem I have is some of the dialogue is very reminiscent of, say, like, uh, Gen Y cops, you know, like when they try and uh, throw in English, so everybody's like, yeah, bro, you know, it's just like, oh, it's kind of grates on your nerves. It's like nobody talks like that. Um but overall, it's not it's not the worst film you would see you know, coming out of the 2012 batch. And for an independent film of a very low budget, I think it really uh, had some very notable points coming out of it. So you can check it out if you've got nothing better to do. Uh, my second recommendation is a film from 2011. This is a documentary film 
um, called Somewhere Between. And I actually heard about this film, I want to say, over on the uh, Seneca podcast as one of their recommendations a couple weeks back. And I'd never heard about it, and I, I thought I'd, you know, check it out. And basically, it tells the story of, um, I think it's four or five girls who are adoptees from China. And they are now uh, becoming young adults, and they're asking questions about where they came from, and some of them are, like, traveling back to China to see if they can locate relatives. So, um, so basically, this is sort of a result of the one-child policy, um, you know, because of the patriarchal issues and, and Confucianism and things, um, the, a lot of families prefer to have a boy, but if you end up having a girl, many times you'd abandon the girl, um, because you, or if you had a second child and it was a girl, you don't want to have, you don't want to face, uh, penalties from the government. So you abandon the girl. And so you have, um, all these orphanages with all these girls. And so since the 1980s, there's been a mass sort of exodus of Westerners coming to China and adopting these baby girls. Now they're growing up and now they're, you know, some of them are going back and it's looking at their identity and the issues of growing up as a sort of a Chinese adoptee in a foreign country. And so it takes a really interesting look at these girls and interviews them and follows them as some of them go back to China and explores their lives. And, and um, in one case, a girl actually finds relatives in China and it goes back through her story and, and how things came about. And so it's an interesting issue. If you've seen the documentary called China's Lost Girls, um, which was um, hosted by Lisa Ling, I think, from, uh, I want to say Discovery, uh, or National Geographic, uh, National Geographic, I think. Um, this film sort of serves as a really interesting follow-up because that film was done uh, quite a few years ago, and it followed families as they sort of went over through the adoption process. And so this is sort of like the next logical step. Now you've got these girls who are you know, teenagers and young adults, and uh, they're asking questions about their identity and their relationship to their adopted parents and their ideas about their relationship to China and being Chinese. And uh, it's just a really interesting film if you're interested in that subject as sort of a social issue and some of the, f some of the personal stories that have happened as a result uh, of that issue. So I check it out. It's called Somewhere Between... And uh, it's available on both uh, iTunes and, I believe, the Amazon store for rental. All right. Uh, I think uh, that's going to wrap things up for our first show back after an extended break. Uh, if you would like to be part of the show, of course, you can uh, check us out over at our website, concast.com. And you can uh, also head over to iTunes and... Uh, Check us out and leave us some feedback there if you like the show. If you don't like the show, if you'd like to see some things things done differently, uh, we'd be happy to hear feedback from you there. Twitter, you can follow us on twitter.com slash concast or twitter.com slash foxlore if you're interested, although I don't tweet as often as I used to these days. and uh, But I do urge you to follow uh, Kevin over at twitter.com slash thegoldenrock. Uh, where he tweets about films, uh, movie news, industry news, and all that good stuff. So if you're very interested in any of that, uh, please follow him. If you want to contact us directly, uh, especially you know, complain at us for being off the air for so long, or write in about Kevin's uh, subtitles, you can do so at uh, <laughs> eastscreen at gmail.com. And, and of course, we have a presence over on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash eastswests. You can also be part of the movie group, our movie group events here in Hong Kong, if you're going to be in Hong Kong. 
Uh, we do have those events. It's a closed circle, um, so it's not open to the public, but you're welcome. If you're going to be in Hong Kong and you'd like to come out and join us for one of our movie events, just uh, drop me a line and I can include you in that circle over on uh, Google+. Pending just, approval and, uh, and going through the 36 chambers of Shaolin uh, obstacle course. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, and if you... Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> lost my train of thought there. And me laughing. Uh, you can catch us on Stitcher. Listen to us on your iPhone, your Android phone, your BlackBerry, and your robust phone. Uh, Stitcher is smart radio for your phone. Find it in your app store or at stitcher.com. Uh, Stitcher smart radio, it's the smarter way to listen to radio. And we thank them for their support of our little show. Additional thanks to Rob Gubbers of Schnauzer Studios for our theme, Ross Chen of lovehkfilm.com for uh, helping us uh, arrange movie nights here in Hong Kong. Uh, Kevin for sticking with me even after a long break for 143 plus episodes. Uh, actually, next one will be 143. And of course, you the listeners, uh, however you're listening to us, whether you join us on the occasion that we stream live, or you listen to us in post as a podcast. We appreciate the fact that you're out there listening. Our next show uh, should be episode 4, 143, and looks like we're going to be covering Ip Man Final Fight, uh, among other things. I'm not sure what else is coming out in the near future, if anything. Do we have What's on the horizon? Do you know, Kevin? Uh, we have Saving General Yang coming up on the 4th, mm-hmm. and um, the, the, the Nick Chun... Um... Nick Chen, Aaron Kwok, the third uh, detective film, The Conspirators, out on the 11th. Um, Are we getting Drug War anytime soon? or is that Oh, Drug be- War is coming the week after that. Yeah. Yay. So we've got a couple of weeks of activity uh, after our short hiatus. So all of that and much more on our next show, which hopefully will be soon and not a month from now. But until then, this is East Screen, West Screen, wishing you all good viewing, and we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. Uh- we